Yes, well, I'm a doctor. And like every doctor, every day when I meet patients, inevitably I would see a patient who has been damaged by alcohol. And that goes to back to the, my very, very first day at medical school, which was uh, 1969. So that's a lot of exposure to the problems of alcohol. And I was very interested in alcohol because I'm a psychiatrist. It change, alcohol changes the brain, changes the way people think, causes dependence, etc. I spent a lot of my research career trying to deal with the harms of alcohol. I did research on treatments of alcohol withdrawal. I did research on alcohol craving, on brain damage, etc. I sort of had this inspiration that maybe the answer to alcohol was not trying to find things to reduce the harms, but to actually just replace it, because that would be much simpler. Uh, and I spent the last 20 years trying to do that. Welcome to the Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 149. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. At Tribe Sober, we're all about communities. So each week, we feature a community voice. Hi, my name is Busiso. I'm recording this message because today I am 500 days poser-free. I couldn't have achieved this milestone without the support from Janet and the Tribe Sober team. Ditching the drink has made me experience the pleasure of being my complete self. I will definitely not go back to the shackles of alcoholism again. Thank you. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit Join our tribe. So let's get to this week's podcast guest. I've been a fan of Professor David Nutt ever since he got sacked by the UK government way back in 2009. He was dismissed for reporting on the comparative harms of various drugs. He claimed that ecstasy and LSD were less dangerous than alcohol, which didn't go down at all well, as the government wouldn't even acknowledge that alcohol was a drug in the first place. In 2010, he published a landmark study in The Lancet, a study that ranked the harm done to users and society by a range of drugs. This study put alcohol at the top spot as number one, as more harmful to society than heroin and crack. And of course, that's partly due to the fact that alcohol is so widely used. Since leaving his government position, Professor Nutt has been chairing drug science, working with other scientists in this NGO which does groundbreaking research and provides independent, evidence-based information on drugs. 
He's been engaged in some fascinating research into alcohol, cannabis and psychedelics. And for the last few years, he's been working on the development of a drink which has just been launched in the UK. It's called Sentia. There's been a great deal of interest in Sentia since it was launched a couple of weeks ago. It's been all over the British press. Sentia is a new type of drink that doesn't contain alcohol, but it aims to recreate its relaxing effects. The blend of botanicals in Sentia does this by enhancing the activity of a neurotransmitter called GABA in the brain. I began our conversation by asking the prof to take us back to his sacking from the UK government. What really happened? Yeah, well, for um, 10 years, I was, in effect, the government's chief drugs advisor on, on drugs in the brain. But I was always appalled by the fact that they didn't seem to consider alcohol a drug, which is why it is the most harmful drug in the UK. And, and the same is true now in almost all Western countries. And in fact, in a lot of undeveloped countries, alcohol is rising to the fore, um, overtaking infectious diseases. I continue to argue that we should have a more rational policy that, that actually looked at drugs in the round and, and tried to reduce the harms of all drugs, including alcohol. And eventually the government just said enough's enough, you know, and they sacked me for, they said I was lobbying, to which my retort was, you know, if you have a chief scientist, <laughs> you've got to, he's got to do the science. Talking science isn't lobbying. So what happened after that? Tell us a bit about how your career developed since then and what your current role is. Well, several things happened. I became much more, much better known, infamous, so to speak. That developed or allowed to develop a, a, quite a, a big discourse on why I was sacked and people began to ask questions about drugs and comparative harms of drugs. And in 2010, we published a famous Lancet graph showing that alcohol was the most harmful drug in the UK. And that's been replicated now by studies in Europe and in Australia. I also set up a parallel committee called Drug Science, a parallel to the government's advisory council on misuse of drugs. So you had a group of scientists who were allowed to tell the truth about drugs without the threat of being sacked. And most of the scientists from the government's committee joined me on that. And we've done an enormous amount of work in terms of trying to develop better ways of assessing drug harms, looking at some of the, the ignored downsides of drug prohibitionist policies like the fact it stops research and also just trying to have a, a much more sensible educational discourse about drugs and, and how to reduce the harms overall so drug science has been pretty successful it's been going 12 years now um, i think there are 12 of us or so work well other not than me uh, we're other than me working in it and uh, produce publications we're running one of the world's largest medical cannabis uh, initiatives and uh, pioneering the use of psychedelics now for the treatment of a range of mental disorders. Fantastic. There must have been a, an element of freedom when you left the government and got together with like-minded scientists and could actually yes. get on with your work unhampered. The weird thing, you know, you, it's trying to please two masters or ride two horses is not possible. You know, it's impossible yeah. to be a scientist and a politician yeah, because one has to lie and the other yeah, Absolutely. Truth. You've been working on this product, Sentia, mm -hmm. for a few years now, mm -hmm. and it was always your ambition to develop something that would give people the buzz that we got from alcohol without the harm. So please talk to us about why you developed that and how it's been going. And, and now, of course, it's come to market, which is really exciting. 
Yes, well, I'm a doctor. And like every doctor, every day when I meet patients, inevitably I would see a patient who has been damaged by alcohol. And that goes to back to the, my very, very first day at medical school, which was uh, in 1969. So that's a lot of exposure to the problems of alcohol. And I was very interested in alcohol because I'm a psychiatrist. It change, alcohol changes the brain, changes the way people think, causes dependence, etc. I spent a lot of my research career trying to deal with the harms of alcohol. I did research on treatments of alcohol withdrawal. I did research on alcohol craving, on brain damage, etc. But it became quite clear... Um, 20-odd years ago now, that alcohol was a much more complicated drug than we thought. It had multiple different targets. And actually dealing with each of those individual targets was very, very difficult. And that's one of the reasons why alcohol is so damaging, because it does affect so many different parts of the body and brain. And then when I was working for the government, we had a, a brainstorming year. We had a, it was called a foresight program. And for one year, the Department of Trade and Industry and the science departments spent time looking at the future, how science could affect the future of brains uh, and drug addiction. And during that, I sort of had this inspiration that maybe the answer to alcohol was not trying to find things to reduce the harms, but to actually just replace it, because that would be much simpler. Uh, and I spent the last 20 years trying to do that. And by exploring in the knowledge of where alcohol works in the brain and what targets it works in the brain through, and I'll talk about that in a minute, and then developing molecules or locating, in the case of sentia, molecules in nature that could replicate those good effects of alcohol, the sociability, the conviviality, the relaxation. But by being selective for those effects, it, um, avoid the negative effects like dependence, aggression, hangover, etc. Yeah. I heard, I think it was a doctor I was interviewing, and he, he said that alcohol is a bit like a sledgehammer, <laughs> affects everything in the brain, whereas I get you've been working on something that is more targeted, haven't you? Well, that's right. There are 80 different chemical neurotransmitters in the brain. We've got good evidence that alcohol interferes with about 12 or more of them. It probably interferes with them all. Which is, many of them haven't been studied yet in terms of alcohol interactions. And it does it in a dose-related way. So... For most people, the benefits of alcohol come at low doses, one or two drinks, which largely target the GABA system. The GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, is the major inhibitory system in the brain. It keeps the brain calm, it relaxes you, reduces anxiety. And that's what alcohol in low doses does, and that's why most people drink. The problem with alcohol is, it, is that if you push the dose up, it starts to interfere with other transmitters, and that what leads to moorishness and craving and binging, amnesia, and hangovers, and eventually, um, if you take too much of it, of course, to death. If we could just focus on the good targets, and it turns out that we can, we can minimize the harms of all those unwanted effects. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. I know you've been developing this uh, this product for years. Uh, has it been really difficult? Have you had to go back to the drawing board a lot? Well, the overarching project is to design a small molecule which will mimic the effects of alcohol, the good effects. We call that alcarel, a rather sort of silly analogy with candorel. Candorel is for, for sugar. Alcarel is for alcohol. All the good things with none of the bad. So the plan with alcarel is to make a small molecule that can be licensed out to drinks companies, and they can put it into any drink they like. You can have Bacardi breezes with alcohol. You can have 
alcohol-free wine with alcohol. You can have alcohol-free beer. You can even have alcohol-free whiskey with alcohol. So that's a long vision. And that's that means inventing a molecule. And we've done that. And we've that's now on my shelf. And I'm now in the process of trying to raise money to get it through safety testing. And that's a, not a trivial thing to do because it will take many millions of pounds to put it through all the food safety tests we need to do. It occurred to us that maybe we could find similar molecules in nature. And if we found them in herbs, which have been used historically for, for, for decades or even centuries, they would be exempt from food safety testing because they would already be accepted as foodstuffs. So we did that. We spent some time digging through the the literature of Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, modern biochemical literature, looking for herbs that made molecules that calmed you, but also worked on the GABA system. And we identified a, a series of a number of herbs, and we've put them together in combinations to make our drinks. The first one is called Sentia Red, and there's another one coming out soon called Sentia Black. These drinks contain herbs which have molecules that work on the GABA system, and other molecules other herbs which have other molecules which facilitate the uptake of those molecules uh, and also facilitate the uh, transport of those molecules from the blood into the brain. So these are cocktails which are targeted at getting into the brain the botanical molecules to mimic the effects of alcohol. You mentioned there, Dave, so you mentioned the food and, and drink safety tests. And of course, alcohol would never get through those tests if it was invented today, would it? No, that's exactly right. Alcohol is, has the most preferred special status of anything that in most sane countries people do. Maybe the only equivalent it would be the privileged place that guns have in American law. Because if alcohol yeah. was invented today, uh, if alcohol was put through yeah. the European food safety testing as a food additive, the maximum recommended amount per year would be 50 mils of alcohol. So that's like a glass of wine or a big glass of wine or certainly a, 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 a big glass of whiskey per year. Now, most, people, uh, most yeah. people, when they drink, drink that much per day. So you can see that we turn a blind eye to the, the known harms of alcohol. Why do we do that? Because we enjoy drinking, because we've been told it's safe. We've been told sometimes it has health benefits because we've always done it, because it's too difficult for governments to do anything about it, etc., etc. But the reality is that alcohol wouldn't, could not pass any kind of food safety legislation if it was invented today. Yeah, it's madness. I like your analogy with guns, actually, in America. It's, <laughs> it's the similar madness, isn't it? Yeah, alcohol still kills more than um, guns. Oh, yeah. Isn't it three million people a year die yeah, of alcohol-related diseases? Yes, I mean, it's... Yeah. In terms of sort of self-inflicted, it's second to tobacco uh, in terms of uh, what you might call avoidable yeah. deaths from um, from substances. Is Sentia safe for those of us in recovery from alcohol addiction? Yeah, that's a really important question, and I've been asked it a lot. And the answer is we haven't formally tested it. I think it's important to say a few things. It is not a medicine. This is not a therapy to get you off alcohol if you're dependent on alcohol. We've had lots of people who are recovering alcoholics drink it and say to me and others, well, I've enjoyed it and it didn't cause me to crave or relapse. But I couldn't say in every case that would be the, that would be the same. So we're certainly not recommending it to people who feel vulnerable or might relapse. 
What I can say is that exactly. it's, it's much less likely to cause dependence than, uh, than alcohol. It doesn't target those parts of the brain. The, the way I envisaged it being developed or emerging as, a, as, a, as a, a drink is it's an alternative. It allows people who perhaps know that they're vulnerable for reasons of genetics or his family history or just personal vulnerability to have something to drink socially that, that gives them some of the effects of alcohol but with much less of the harm. So it, we hope in time people will gravitate towards it and therefore reduce the, you know, the number of people who are alcohol dependent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's AA that recommend that people that have had a problem with alcohol, that they don't touch alcohol-free drinks. But in the community that we have, you know, Tribe Sober, our take is, well, you know, try it. But obviously, if you're triggered, then then don't drink. But personally, I, I drink lots of alcohol-free beer. And I'm certainly going to, to try Sentia. My, my son's bringing me a bottle from the UK tomorrow, so I'm very excited. Oh, well, I look <laughs> forward to your feedback. It's like a vermouth. It's a, it's a, a strong tasting vermouth, which you can drink neat uh, on ice, preferably. Uh, but if that's too strong, you can say so you can drink it as that aperitif. But for most people, it's preferable. They seem to prefer it with a, with a mixer, so either tonics or orange juice or apple juice or Coca-Cola or whatever. You know, would, however you would drink, use a vermouth, you know, treat Sentia the same. You know. I think I'm going to like it straight with ice. <laughs> okay, well, okay, I hope you do. It's got a, people often say it's got a Christmassy flavour. It's quite, quite herbally. But just to go back to your point about, so, about non-alcoholic, I mean, it's a really... It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating question, and I completely agree with what you said. It's, a, it's a, up to individuals, because although there's a, Alcoholics Anonymous do have a lot of merits, in the, in, particularly in terms of the support scheme, not everyone can manage without a drink. It's much better if you're going to have to go somewhere, if you need a drink to socialize, it's much better to have a non-alcoholic drink in your hand than an alcoholic drink. Absolutely, absolutely. When when I gave up drinking seven years ago, um, there were no alcohol-free alternatives. So I used to feel even more sorry for myself, you know, when I went out and I was offered a, a Coke or a glass of water. So these days, it's much easier when people give up because there, there's, even here in South Africa, we've got a shop that sells more than 100 alternatives. So talking of that, w what are your plans for international distribution? The challenge is, of course, it's, it's um, a liquid and it's in a glass bottle. Well, that means it's heavy. So that means it's expensive to ship. To be quite honest with you, I think it's going to be challenging to to make it cost effective to, to sell it in South Africa or even anywhere overseas. So what we're looking at in the short term is to go to markets where there will be quite a lot of demand. And that obviously the biggest one would be America. And then to see if we can yeah. manufacture it there. Now, one of the great advantages yes. of, the, of the synthetic, the Arcarel, the one which were the follow-up compound, is that it, it's much, much lighter. So instead of a litre of, uh, you're gonna, probably going to get 500 mils of Sentia. Well, 500, and that'll give you about 10 drinks or so. 500 mils of the synthetic would give you potentially 50 drinks. So we could make massive savings in terms of the, the carbon dioxide costs of transporting it because so, it could be sent in, in, in a concentrate to South Africa and then made up by a local drinks company 
Yeah. So that's that's one of the sustainability. Interestingly, turns out to be one of the unexpected benefits of having a, a small synthetic molecule over a botanical product. Yeah, interesting. Well, please work on that challenge yeah, <laughs> because yeah. we need your drink here. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Let's go back to the science a bit, if we can, Dave. Talk, talk us through what happens in our brain when we drink alcohol. So when you drink alcohol, the um, the first thing that happens is, of course, is you smell it. You get an aroma. And the tongue and the, the, the nose, they feed straight into parts of the brain which are associated with pleasure. So if you've got used to sniffing booze and then drinking booze and then getting high on booze, the smell then kind of kindles, reactivates those memories. So immediately you start to look forward to the pleasure. But that pleasure only comes as a result of the alcohol eventually getting into your brain, which it does obviously through the gut, and then it goes into the, into, through the liver and then into the brain. And when alcohol gets in the brain, it starts to work on the many neurotransmitters, the chemicals in the brain, which communicate between brain cells. Uh, and, the, and the first one it begins to turn on is this chemical called GABA, the calming transmitter. It's a sort of sociability, relaxing transmitter. Alcohol increases the effect of GABA. And for many people, particularly anxious people, people in social situations, people st in stress, GABA levels fall. And we, one of the theories as to why we get anxious is because GABA levels fall. And so alcohol sort of restores that kind of balance. And, and, and that's kind of obvious. And if you think of think about flying, what's the first thing they do on aeroplanes when they turn off the seatbelt sign? They give you a drink. <laughs> give you a drink. Why is that? Because the vast, well, probably a, a significant minority, a large minority of people who are flying are actually very anxious about flying, and alcohol calms you down. So that's so that's the relaxing benefits of alcohol. But then if you drink some more, alcohol starts to work on other systems. It starts to release dopamine. Now, dopamine is a, is a stimulant neurotransmitter. It's the same. It's, where, it's what drugs like cocaine and amphetamine work on. Uh, and that gets you going. It gets you activated. But it also, it's, <clears throat> it's a Moorish transmitter. It, you want more. And that's why people go on alcohol binges, because the dopamine starts to pour out. And then it kicks in a reflex, which says, give me more, give me more. And that's how people start to lose control. It also releases endorphins, which also contribute to the addictiveness and the uh, loss of control. And then if you carry on drinking, once you get blood levels of over about 150 milligrams per cent, you start to block what is the most important transmitter in your brain, which is called glutamate. Now, glutamate is a transmitter which keeps you awake. It's vital for consciousness and for laying down of memories. And that's why people have blackouts. Once you start to block glutamate, you can't remember things because you can't lay down new memories. Blocking glutamate then leads to other consequences, which like brain damage and withdrawal and hangover as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Th- those blackouts are scary because personally, I had breast cancer and I think I knew there was a link between my heavy drinking and my breast cancer. But, you know, head in the sand, I carried on drinking. But what finally scared me into quitting was a serious blackouts. And they weren't just the, the kind of blackout where things get a bit hazy late in the evening, but I lost chunks of time. Yeah. I lost practically a whole day and I had complete amnesia but my friends explained that during that day I seemed normal you know I was walking and talking I wasn't falling all over the place or slurring my words yeah. and I found that really frightening and that's you know it, it's the the glutamate yeah you're fortunate that you took notice of it and you're fortunate you're, your friends yeah. told you what was going on because the blackouts are a, a very worrying pointer to the fact you're definitely overdoing it if you've had a blackout, yeah. seriously reconsider what you're doing with your life because it almost certainly causing brain damage at that point. Yeah. And people murder people in blackouts, don't they? And, and wake up in jail and don't remember everything. Well, that's exactly it's, what, Yeah. Uh, I mean, people do all sorts of crazy things in, in, in blackouts. I mean, they, well, they, yeah. you know, they do a lot. You know, murder is relatively rare, but there's an awful lot of violence, an awful lot of stupidity. You know, that's why alcohol is the most harmful drug, because so many people drink. And quite a few of those get into problems with the drinking. Yeah. It was interesting what you said about the garbage there. And in your book, Drink, I I was reading about introverts. And I think you said that you thought that introverts had the garbage was set lower. And that's why they love drinking so much. And I'm an introvert, and a lot of people in our community that that got into trouble with alcohol were introverts. That's quite interesting. Yes, isn't in it? Fact, that's right. It's one of the earliest pieces of research I did, like 40 years ago now, showing that introverted people tend to have a, a less GABA function, and so alcohol sort of rectifies that, so that makes them yeah. vulnerable. It's the same as anxious people as well. I mean, they, they both have yeah. similar sorts of uh, of issues, and and just as a general point, it's bad practice to be using alcohol to treat any kind of long-standing mental problem or personality problem it's much better to to find safer drugs to do that or other forms of therapy like psychotherapy i don't know if you've seen a book by an american lady called susan kane she wrote a book called quiet and it was about introverts and extroverts and she explained that the population the global population is more or less split 50-50 introverts, extroverts. But because extroverts tend to do well in life, you know, they're the ones with good careers, the sparkling social life, etc. A lot of introverts want that lifestyle and they use alcohol to try and get there. I thought that was quite interesting. Absolutely. I I think I can say to all the introverts out there, as an extrovert myself, it's not all it's cut out to be. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, according to Susan's book, she she's an introvert herself, obviously. You know, introverts are, are highly intelligent and very creative people. I felt a lot better about being an introvert when I read that book. <laughs> so let's talk about the hangover pill. Yeah, I think it was a Swedish invention, the one I was reading about, and quite recent, and it was completely sold out. But is that protective or, or is it just a way to make people drink even more and then they do even more damage to themselves? Well, that is exactly the point. I have to say it does depend a little bit on the way in which the anti-hangover 
pills work. So if if it were if hangover pills work by reducing the amount of alcohol it gets in your body, then they are probably doing you benefit. However, if they work by reducing alcohol but not the toxic metabolites of alcohol like acetaldehyde, then they could be doing more harm. Uh, and of course, if they just stop the pain of hangover with, without stopping the damage of alcohol, then they could be doing a lot more harm. So at present, exactly, really difficult to, to say anything positive about hangover reducing agents. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit of, uh, I meet people sometimes who say, oh yeah, I drink a lot, but I'm fine. I never get hangovers. And I often think that's that's not really something to be pleased about because our body's trying to let us know, isn't well, it? Well, I, I think in my book, I mentioned the two years when I was chief of the, um, the alcohol research ward at NIH in America. I interviewed every patient that came through there and obviously I asked them all the standard questions one of which was do you get hangovers and almost none of them got hangovers and they were all severely alcohol dependent and wow. those of us who have had hangovers and I can put my hand up and say I'm one hangovers are a significant deterrent you were talking about and I agree with you that you know unless you're like me and you go over the top. Uh, there's such a benefit to alcohol helping you to socialize and making socializing more enjoyable. But hopefully people like me will be able to do that with Sentia now. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right. So this is our ambition. It's not an alcohol-free drink. It's not an alcohol drink. It's a third way. It's a, We call it a GABA spirit because it targets this neurotransmitter which allows people to relax and socialize. And it, we want we want people to enjoy socializing. I'd like people to go to the pub and drink Sentia or other equivalents because they would get the benefits of the socialization with reduced risks of harms of alcohol. Wouldn't that be a wonderful place to be to restore the bar as a place that's both socially oh, healthy absolutely. and physically healthy? Absolutely. I love what you said there about a third way, because um, we, we seem to have a situation at the moment where there's alcohol, you know, which is bad for some of us. And then we've got the alcohol free drinks. And personally, I think the beer is fantastic. And that's why I drink that. And I never drank uh, beer normally. But the wine is pretty revolting. You know, there's a lot of work needs to be done on the wine. But I think we need to, rather than trying to find fake wine, because let's face it, it's never going to taste as good as the proper wine we used to drink. There has to be a third category of drinks. And things like Sentia fall in that third category, don't they? They, are, they do. And we're calling it uh, functional drinks because yeah. they give you the, <clears throat> some of the functions that you want from alcohol. But with much reduced risks of the, the dysfunction. It is possible. We, we're, we're experimenting with some of our herbs to make what you might call uh, an in, a little liquid ingredient that you could put into alcohol-free beer and alcohol-free wine to give it the effects that you want. And to our very interestingly, it does seem to improve the taste of alcohol-free wine, uh, particularly physio. Oh. So it may be in, in the future you'll... You'll be seeing a sentier, a sparkling sentier alongside the vineyard. Yes. Yes, well, I think I've tasted most of the alcohol-free wines and, and hated them. But I must say the ones that are vaguely acceptable are the sparkling wines because somehow there's a bit more body to them. It's not quite like grape juice. Yeah, it's not quite so sweet here. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Another question, I know you've written a book about cannabis. I haven't read that one yet, but I wanted to ask you about 
you know, young people these days, from what I gather, especially in the UK, they're not quite as keen on drinking alcohol as, as their parents were. It's the baby boomers that are yeah. are driving the uh, the alcohol sales these days, I think. But if a young person is smoking cannabis kind of de- on a daily basis, is that going to harm them more or less than alcohol? Well, that's a difficult question. You have to say how much cannabis are they using compared with how much alcohol. So, you know, a spliff a day versus mm. a, a bottle of wine yeah. a day, well, the alcohol is much more dangerous. Yeah. A glass, a, a okay. pint of beer a day versus five spliffs of skunk a day, then the skunk's probably going to be more harmful. Right. Question of what you're taking. In, and that's why I wrote the, both, <laughs> written both the books, so you can actually read them and you can make sense yeah, of how you deal or how people deal with, with these choices. Because in many countries now, they have the choice in... There's 200 million Americans have got legal access to marijuana. So what we're beginning to see is that people are switching from alcohol to cannabis, um, and that is certainly reducing alcohol consumption and possibly reducing alcohol harms and, and traffic accidents. But on the other hand, you know, if, if people don't have access to the le- less harmful forms of cannabis, such as the, the traditional sort of herbal mixtures with THC and cannabidiol, if they're forced to use things like skunk, then they, they may end up becoming more dependent and having having more harms than that. So it, what I think we should have is a sensible regulated market of alcohol and cannabis and a lot of education around uh, around both. Yeah. That's There's one great. fascinating thing yeah, well, that, the ca- that I want to share with you, which I mentioned in the book, and not, most people don't know this still, but it's proved extremely difficult to find treatments for alcoholic liver cirrhosis. But it does seem from population studies that if you smoke cannabis with alcohol, you get much less cirrhosis. And that does offer a fascinating opportunity for interventions for people with cirrhosis, because it might be in countries where cannabis is a medicine, which I think in South Africa it is now, we might be using medical cannabis to treat the harms of alcohol, which would be on the liver, which up to now have proved completely intractable. You, You know, people have had to have liver transplants. There's been no other treatment I gather that death rates from alcohol liver disease have risen dramatically in the UK. I was going to ask you, if you were reappointed by the UK government, I'm sure you wouldn't take the job. But if you were, uh, what what policies would you recommend? Well, it's really very straightforward. The reason we've had a, a threefold increase in death rates from liver disease from alcohol in the last 30 years is that the real cost of alcohol has gone down to a third of what it was 30 years ago. So basically, it's cheaper than it was, and it's more accessible. I like the Swedish model. The Swedes have this uh, national outlet. All alcohol in Sweden, above 2.8%, I think, is sold through the state in the system of logic. And it's sold in supermarkets that have phenomenal choice, but it's only sold between 9 and 5, Monday to Friday, and I think nine and one on a Saturday. So people have to go and choose what to buy. It's expensive, twice the price in Britain. The Swedes therefore drink less. They drink better, but le- better quality, less alcohol than us, and they have much lower rates of alcohol-related harm. So the solution is, pre- is straightforward, really. It's, it's to make sure that alcohol is taxed appropriately to reduce consumption to where it used to be 30, 40 years ago. We reduce consumption by a half through taxation. That would massively reduce the harms of alcohol. We should also slow down access, not have 24-hour sales and corner shops. If you could only drink outside working hours in bars, 
then there's, there would be less consumption and more monitoring of people's drunkenness. So those two approaches together would massively reduce the harms of alcohol. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's madness, really, when you think how easy it is to just pick up, you know, bottles of wine and spirits in the supermarket when you're doing your weekly shop for food. I used to do that and I was in denial, really. And I used to mutter about how expensive food was getting. <laughs> but it's only because my trolley was half full of alcohol. But it, yeah. they just make it so and easy. And of course, you can have it all delivered by yeah. Amazon these that's days, absolutely. can't you? Yeah, no, that's another very dangerous thing. We have normalized. You don't even have to stagger to the shop to get it. No, and that would be something that we should stop. You know, it's hardly oppressive to ask people to think before they drink. But the problem is, if you're drunk and then you ring up, you can get the stuff delivered. Then you, you know, you you've lost all sense of control. So, talking about control, talk to us about tolerance and what happened to poor Amy Winehouse. Yes. So, when Amy died. I think most of us thought, wow, she probably died of a, of a drug overdose. I think most of us didn't know until she died that she was a heroin addict. And I think none of us knew she was an alcoholic. But it was alcohol that killed her. And the reason for that is that she'd stopped drinking when she stopped using heroin. And, uh, and she lost tolerance to both. But it was easier for her to go out and get a litre of vodka than it was to get another hit of heroin. And just like with heroin, if you stop drinking, and then if you go back to drinking what you drank before, like a litre of vodka, you get blood alcohol levels which kill you, even though they wouldn't have done if you carried on drinking. So she's, there's this paradox yeah. that, that abstinence from alcohol, just like abstinence from opiates, makes you more vulnerable to death when you relapse. And we don't really have any yeah. good interventions to help people stay sober or to reduce the harms of alcohol if they do relapse. And that's a huge gap. So the, these people that these people that hop in and out of rehab, you know, it's it's dicing with danger, isn't it? Because they come out clean, and then if they haven't been given the tools to stay sober, they're going to get into big trouble if they relapse. That's exactly right. That's right. Abstinence is not in itself a solution. Because you do because because of relapse, you know. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So last question, then I must let you go. Do you think alcohol is heading for a cigarette moment? I mean, you and I uh, are mature enough to remember when everybody smoked and then suddenly, you know, the the advertising was was tamped down a bit. And then we read in the media that uh, smoking caused lung cancer and people like me immediately gave up. They were horrified and surprised. Do you think alcohol is getting there where we're going to find um, the harms in the public um, domain and the mainstream media? It's taken a long time, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. And it, to, the truth is, the regulations around tobacco were driven not by, actually, by fear of lung cancer so much as by uh, through passive smoking and the litigation from people working in bars. So it was beginning to get rid of smoking in in, in public places. It began to erode consumption of tobacco. And also, it was encouraged by the ban on advertising. Now, I'm not sure what the South African situation is, but we've still in Britain not managed to instigate a ban on alcohol advertising. And that's because the drinks industry has learned a lesson from the tobacco industry and has, has changed its whole tactic. Instead of denying the harms of alcohol, it puts the blame on the drinker. 
And it says drink responsibly. And if you don't, well, it's your fault. Well, of course, when we drink, we're not responsible, well, are we? That is exactly. It's com- that's, that's intellectually dishonest and mealy mouth. But what we are seeing yeah. is we are seeing younger people. We've already touched on this earlier in, in our conversation. We're seeing young people look at the health harms of alcohol and seek alternatives. And that's why I think eventually the third way, the functional drinks like Sentia, will take over because young people will see that they're a win-win. You get, you get what you want from yeah. But you also get a lot more health benefits. So I, I think alcohol will slowly disappear. I don't think it'll be a bigger yeah. transition. But also yeah. remember, we still have about 10% of the British population still smoking cigarettes. We've got it down from 40 or 50%. So we've done a, you know, but it won't go away. And I think the same will be true of alcohol. There will be people who want alcohol. But in the end, a lot more people will be drinking alternatives. Thank you so much for all the science, David. And of course, for inventing this amazing drink, which could be just what some of us ex-drinkers are looking for. Since recording this interview, I've been lucky enough to sample Sentia, and I can report that not only is it delicious, but it certainly does hit the spot and deliver a gentle buzz. I drank my neat with lots of ice and enjoyed the spicy bitterness. No sign of that sweetness we get with so many of our alcohol-free drinks. Our lucky UK listeners will be able to order it right away. And hopefully some of those in the rest of the world will get to sample it soon. Let's pull out some key points from the conversation. David's interest in the effects of alcohol began during his early career as a doctor. Like most doctors, he would see patients who'd been damaged by alcohol practically every day. His goal has been to produce a drink which provides the buzz of alcohol without the harm. Sentia replicates the positive effects of alcohol, effects like sociability and relaxation, but without the negative effects like aggression and dependence. Alcohol affects our brains a bit like a sledgehammer, whereas Sentia is much more delicate and targeted. The benefits of alcohol kick in after one or two drinks when it affects our GABA system, which keeps the brain calm. But if we push the dose up to more than two drinks, then it begins to affect other brain neurotransmitters, and that can lead to moreishness, craving, binging, amnesia, and of course, hangovers. So the professors found a way to minimise those unwanted effects. Sentia has been designed by a world-renowned team of botanists, innovators and scientists, and it only targets the GABA system. The fact that the herbs that have been used to create it can be found in nature and has been used for centuries means that it's exempt from the food safety testing system. We talked about the fact that if alcohol was invented today, it would never pass any of the rigorous food and drink safety tests which new products all have to go through. And David reflected how alcohol seems to have a special and privileged status in the world and came up with the interesting comparison with the fact that guns seem to have a similar privileged place in US law. He pointed out that alcohol actually kills more people than guns each year. I googled this stat and discovered that 45,000 people died from gunshot wounds in 2020. That was the highest ever. 
whereas alcohol-related deaths average at around 140,000 a year. We're just talking about the states here, of course. Globally, it's 3 million people a year die of alcohol-related causes. I asked the prof if Sentia was safe for those of us in recovery. He made it clear that Sentia is not a medicine or a therapy. However, it will not create dependence and it will create a feeling of relaxation. He sees it as a good alternative for people who are vulnerable to alcohol dependence. At Tribe Sober, we always say, don't drink alcohol-free drinks if they trigger you to want the real thing. And of course, we'd advise the same approach with Sentia. But for me, the advantage of Sentia is that it's not fake alcohol, so it's probably unlikely to trigger ex-drinkers. Sentia is available in the UK right now, and you can read more about it on the website, which is sentiaspirits.com. I'll put it in the show notes. International distribution has its challenges, but the first step may be to get it manufactured in the US and then it could be sent as a concentrate to other countries. So watch this space and we'll keep you informed. I couldn't let David leave the interview without giving us a little science lesson. So I asked him to explain what happens in our brain when we drink alcohol. So the first neurotransmitter to get hit is the GABA. And that makes us feel calmer, more relaxed and more like socialising. And of course, that's the effect that he's aiming for with his new drink, Sentia. Drinking more than a couple of glasses of alcohol will trigger dopamine, a stimulant which will make us want more. And that's why we go on binges. That's why some of us complain that we seem to have no off switch. It also releases endorphins, which contribute to addictiveness and lack of control. Carry on drinking and it gets really dangerous because we start to block the most important neurotransmitter of all, which is glutamate, which keeps us awake. Now, glutamate is vital for consciousness and for laying down memories. So that's why we get blackouts. Blocking glutamate can lead to brain damage, withdrawal, and of course is responsible for our hangovers. I told the prof about my six-hour walking, talking blackout that scared me so much that I finally decided to quit. And he confirmed that I'd done the right thing and that blackouts are a huge red flag. It means you must make a change as you're at risk of brain damage when it gets to that stage. We also talked about the fact that deaths from liver damage in the UK have increased threefold in the last 30 years. And this is because the real price of alcohol has reduced to a third of what it used to be 30 years ago. And of course, availability has also increased dramatically. I asked David how he would address this problem if he had a powerful position in the British government again. His solution would be to limit availability and increase taxation. And these two measures would massively reduce the harms of alcohol. If you're listening to this podcast from the UK, please order some Sentia and let us know your verdict. Send your review to Janet at tribesober.com and we'll collect the reviews and report back on them. So let me end this podcast episode with a member message from one of our chat rooms. As my interviews with a professor, 
I've selected a message from member Professor Dan. So here is Dan from the US. From my experience of meeting others in treatment or sobriety meetings, there's a huge range in how each person defines themselves as well as what degree of drinking was too much in their own mind. It's not at all helpful to look at the worst cases and say, well, at least I'm not that bad, so I can't have a very severe addiction. Everyone seems to have a different point at which they decide that they are sick and tired of being sick and tired. In my experience, it's not helpful to compare your rock bottom with someone else's and the label of alcoholic is way too loaded with inaccurate and harmful social connotations. The real question is whether you think drinking is a problem for you without getting too hung up on issues of definitions and comparisons. Well said, Dan. Thank you so much for the wisdom you bring to our tribe. So if you're looking for a warm and welcoming community where you can benefit from the input of members like Dan, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.